Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wired Senior Associate Editor Ariel Pardes. Hello! And Senior Writer Lauren Good. Hello! And today we'll be joined by another Wired writer on the show, Matt Simon from our science desk is going to be telling us about the latest report from the World Health Organization on microplastics. Basically, there are small particles of plastic in the air, in the water, and we are all consuming it. Matt, our resident doomsayer, will tell us how worried we should be. Delicious. (laughs) Things are going to get a little bit dark. Uh, However, it's definitely news you can use. But first, let's get to the news. Ariel, would you like to go first? I would love to. Have you guys been on Reddit lately? Yes. Thanks to you. Well, if, if you haven't, then you may not be aware that Reddit, which is famous for its news aggregation and discussion boards, has launched live streaming. So if you open the mobile app, you'll see that at the very top of the front page, there's now a live video under the banner that says RPAN, the Reddit Public Access Network. Now, this is temporary. RPAN is a surprise week-long experiment, which is being entirely moderated by Reddit's full-time staff. Um, And on Friday, it will disappear. But Reddit is planning to add live streaming as a more permanent feature later on. So this is sort of like a sandbox to see how people use live video on a platform that has always been about text. Um, I'm just going to open it right now and tell you what's what's going on. Um, so if you visit Reddit on the mobile app, you can see like right now there's a guy who appears to be uh, playing the keyboard and dancing without a shirt on. Um, there's another guy who's reading aloud from a book. Oh, he's reading The Hobbit. That's nice. Um, there's a kid who appears to be about 15 years old playing the drums. Earlier I was on here, there were a lot of dogs. So mm-hmm. cute. Dogs and cats. Um, it's pretty wild, though. Um, for a platform that's had some problems with moderation in the past and has, has certainly been no stranger to toxic content, it's it's a big leap of faith it is and when i was reading this story uh, i you know i was like each paragraph as it was going i was like okay so when are they going to talk about the fact that it's a really hard thing to do have unmoderated video on the internet because all kinds of bad things happen and then they do actually they are being very conscious of that right they have uh, right now moderators in place and if something terrible happens like somebody live streams a shooting which has happened before or somebody live streams any sort of horrific event uh, they'll have somebody watching it who will be able to take it down um, i'm really curious to see how they handle that problem at scale yeah i am as well because right now our pan is moderated by reddit's full-time paid staff in the future if they launch this permanently it'll be moderated by reddit's network of volunteer moderators Mm -hmm. and um that that will be tricky but um at least for this week it seems like it's been really wholesome and nice (laughs) (laughs) um which is which is nice to see you know it's a relief when the internet delivers yeah you know reddit uh, for a long time has been associated with some of the worst parts of the internet and some of the best parts Mm -hmm, of the internet mm -hmm. so i think this is just going to be reflection on that all right moving on Earlier this month, Samsung announced two new Galaxy Note 10 phones. Now, if you're familiar with Samsung's mobile product line, you know that the Note devices are the largest phones the company makes. 
comically large in fact. The bigger of the two models, the Note 10 Plus, has a 6.8 inch screen, which is huge. You may also be aware that the Galaxy Note is extremely popular. People love huge phones, people love Samsung phones, and when you put the two together, you've got a top tier device that costs over $1,000 that big phone lovers go bonkers for. Well, the reviewers are going bonkers for it as well. This week, hardware critics from around all of the big media outlets started publishing their own reviews of the Samsung Galaxy Note 10 Plus, and the praise was nearly universal. Sam Rutherford at Gizmodo called it damn near perfect. Gordon Kelly over at Forbes called it the smartphone to buy. Jessica Dolcord at CNN is doing a continuing test of the phone over many weeks, but says that so far it is, quote, shaping up to be beautiful. Dieter Bone at The Verge says there are some good things and some bad things, but overall it's pretty good. Lauren... You reviewed the Galaxy Note 10 Plus for Wired and gave it an 8 out of 10, calling it excellent overall. Tell us about it. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's important to put this in a little bit of context first, which is that the smartphone market is slowing down. We've reached a point where so many people have smartphones that there's uh, less room for growth. You know, the total addressable market is sort of shrinking and people are starting to hold on for phones a little bit longer. I think that's both anecdotal and some studies have shown that. So phone makers are in a position right now where they can't just guarantee that people are going to buy the newest and latest and greatest thing. They have to come up with very creative ways to make their phones stand out and to try to differentiate them. And for Samsung, that's happening within their own phone line. Because if you think about it, Samsung has two flagship phone launches every year. They have one in February, which is the S line. This year was the S10. And then they have the Note launch, which they've had since 2011, every August into September and that kind of time frame. So now with the Note, It's not just one giant phone. They have the Note 10 Plus, which is what we were able to review Mm. this week. And then they have the Note 10, which happens to be sort of the same size of the S10 that came out in February. So there are just these very slight differentiations between all the different phones. The Note 10 Plus is the biggest. And in my opinion, it's the most beautiful. It's got like kind of these angular edges um, that are maybe a little bit different from the S10, which are more rounded. It's more rounded, but um, this has basically an edge-to-edge display. It's, as you mentioned, a 6.8-inch display. It's got this really cool iridescent finish called Aura Glow, which is very reflective. Um, it's got this like beautiful screen, even though the display is not that much different from the display we saw in the S10 in February. It's got, of course, the S Pen, the little stylus, little matchstick stylus, which is what sets this apart. I call it. The Spen. (laughs) It's got like this quad uh, lens camera. But then when you look at the guts of it, that's another thing that sets it apart because it ships with like 12 gigabytes of RAM. Like this is crazy. This is like a crazy amount of power for a phone. It's running on the, you know, Qualcomm Snapdragon 855 processor, which is the latest processor. It's got like, it's just got all the bells and whistles. So this is the kind of phone where if you're willing to spend $1,100 on a phone, you're obsessed with Samsung phones and you're particularly obsessed with the Note. This is like, this is just the phone you mm. get. For the average person though, it's probably a little too much phone. That's my take. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's also very, very, very expensive. $1,100. <laughs> I mean, you can get, I think you can get the S10 now, the one that launched just a mere six months ago for something like $850, which is also still very expensive, mm-hmm. but you're not getting that much less phone. Right. And we're gonna have more reviews Um, let's see, next week, I guess. Sometime soon, we're going to be reviewing the regular-sized 
Note 10. So stay tuned for Just that. Just the Note 10, not the Note 10 Plus. That's right. And that phone is running on Google's Android 9 Pie, which is a great segue to the next news item of the, of the day. The Google Android operating system has long been known for its dessert-themed names, but now it's going on a diet. Its newest mobile operating system, Android Q, was this was made available as a beta software back in March. It's going to officially launch sometime in the next few weeks. But unlike Jelly Bean, Lollipop, Nougat, my favorite, Oreo, <laughs> Pie, et cetera, et cetera, this one, this operating system is just going to be called, are you guys ready for this? Are you ready? Yes. Android 10. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, our own Boone Ashworth, who, by the way, also records and edits this podcast. So thank you, Boone. He's sitting here in the room with us today. Uh, writes on Wired.com that Google made the decision partly because it wanted to be more inclusive and partly because it wanted to make Android more accessible. A spokesperson from Google told Boone that the company had heard feedback over the years that, quote unquote, the names weren't always intuitively understandable by everybody in the global community. So like some people are interpreting pie differently and some in some markets it's savory and some markets it's sweet. I don't know, you know. Also, the green robot logo is going to stick around, but the word Android will change from green to black because it's a higher contrast and it'll make it more visual and easier on the eyes for people with visual impairments. So um, in some ways, these are like very small tweaks, but in other ways, it's the end of Google desserts. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing. It doesn't really make much difference if you are just an Android phone user because it just you see the name of the operating system when you look at it as a number in addition to the name of the dessert. The desserts were very cute. It gave Google a really good marketing opportunity, but there was a problem, I think, that seems like a pretty big problem, which is that Android is on 2.5 billion devices around the world, and it is probably the most distributed uh, piece of software in the world. And not everybody's alphabet goes ABC, right? Some people are missing the letters that we know. Some people don't even use that alphabet. So they have a hard time knowing like if Marshmallow comes before KitKat or after KitKat, you know? So they're not, it, just by calling it a, a name instead of a number, it's not clear that what you have is something that is current or two steps ago or you know, you don't know where you fall in the in the progression. So I think that's like a good reason to get rid of it. And also, I don't know, I think people who don't like Android, one of the things that they don't like about it is just that it's so cute and getting rid of the cute name makes it a little bit less cute. So maybe it makes it more appealing to more people. That's just a guess. I don't really know about that. Maybe I'm reading into this too much, but do you see little things like this as this, I don't know, we're entering a new phase of smartphones. I mean, smartphones have been around now in a major way for about a decade, right? And and we are reaching this point, this tipping point where more people than not have smartphones. And I don't know, companies are trying different things and have to innovate in order to sell them. And to me, it just feels like Android dropping desserts after several years of desserts just feels like another small moment in that shift. Yeah, I mean, you said it, they're constantly evolving, right? Phones are constantly evolving. I think we've reached a point where the hardware is not evolving as quickly as the software is evolving. And we've been there for a while. And we're going to keep seeing phones with four cameras and five cameras and eight cameras, and we're gonna see phones with more and more RAM and everything. But then, of course, the software has to have much more capability beyond what it has in order to keep up with that. So 
I don't really know that dropping the name is a signal of that, but it's definitely something that they're thinking about and they're probably just going to start doing like 10.1, 10.5, 10.7, 10.8 as they add those little capabilities that expose new things in the hardware. Mm-hmm. So it'll probably make it easier for them to incrementally update in a more consumer-facing way. Mm-hmm. Seems pretty convenient that they stopped doing this at Q. Right? A letter that does not have an obvious dessert. Right? What well, would R have been? Rutabaga. Rugula. Uh, yeah, see, they're getting to the part of the alphabet where the desserts are not so obvious. <laughs> Good riddance. <laughs> well, um, let's take a quick break and then return with Matt Simon to tell us about microplastics. And how we're all going to die. Matt Simon is a staff science writer at Wired who is one of the few people on Earth to have witnessed the fabled mating ritual of the exotal salamander. No, really, he is. He's also the author of two books, The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar and The Plight of the Living Dead. His latest story in Wired is about microplastics, how we're drinking them without even realizing it, and what it means for our health. Matt, thank you for joining us. And thanks for having me under these dire circumstances. (laughs) Yeah, so... Before we get too dire, let's just set the stage. What are microplastics? Microplastics are defined as bits of plastic smaller than five millimeters. Um, so very tiny, but there's a, a pretty big range. They can be you know, somewhat visible down to completely invisible. Uh, the problem with plastic, of course, is that uh, it is built to last. Um, so when these things float out into the ocean, uh, they'll break down over time, but very little of it will break off um, into these microplastics. It grows brittle under UV light uh, in the ocean. Of course, that's a lot of heat out there. So it breaks into these smaller and smaller pieces, and these smaller and smaller pieces get into smaller and smaller places. So we are finding them in our seafood, embedded in tissues and things like that. We have found a good amount of it. Um, Some studies looked at a liter of of drinking water, and there were thousands of, of microplastic particles in there. So we are consuming them. We're also inhaling them. They are blowing in the wind. Um, They're coming from all kinds of sources, like yoga pants, of all things, have these synthetic fibers. You wash them, that water goes out, uh, and we then treat that water again to drink, and that comes back into our bodies. Uh, So it is incredibly pervasive and a completely impossible problem to fix because there's no such thing as a magnet you can just drag over the earth to pick up all these microplastics. Hate to start off in a really dire way, but that's unfortunately just the the nature of things. You brought up a good point, which is that it's not just, uh, you know, the remnants of plastic water bottles and things that come to mind, but other, you know, fabrics, uh, textiles, yoga pants. Where else are microplastics coming from that people might not be thinking of or realizing. Yeah, there's a good study uh, a couple weeks ago that looked at concentrations of these microplastics blowing into pristine habitats like in the Arctic. So these ice flows, which are essentially just chunks of floating ice in these very remote areas, the wind is blowing microplastics and it's settling on these these little ice flows and they're able to quantify just how much got up there. It's, and it's, again, thousands of particles sometimes per, uh, per liter. Um, one of the interesting things about that study was they were finding a lot of it was from varnish. So varnish has polymers in it, and what seems to be happening is, uh, you know, oil rigs, offshore stuff um, has this paint, this varnish that then comes off, uh, blows in the wind. Um, they've also done some sampling along roads uh, in uh, in Germany and the sampling the the snow there, and found that 
it was in just incredible concentrations of microplastics coming from things like tires and shoes. So all these things that we wear and use virtually, I mean, just think about how omnipresent plastic is in our lives. All of it is shedding little tiny bits that are invisible to the human eye and are ending up not only in our bodies, but throughout virtually the entire environment. And how worried should we be about that? That brings us to the WHO, which put out a report yesterday saying, well, at the moment, don't worry. Uh, the problem is that they're saying that because there just is virtually no research into what this does to humans. So they do research in the lab where they will present organisms with very high concentrations of plastics. So leaching the plastics in water and many times the amount that you'd actually find out in nature. So they are able to show that, for instance, the bacteria that are floating around the oceans that produce the oxygen that we breathe, um, their growth is stunted by these leachates, as they're called, from microplastics. But again, that's in a very high dose that you wouldn't find out in nature. Um, and they have to do that to, to get these reactions from these organisms. So it's not clear yet, first of all, how it's affecting organisms in the ocean. And we know that it's embedding in their tissues. It's coming up in, in shellfish and regular fish swimming around out there. But we just don't have a good idea about the effects uh, in particular on the human body. We we know that we are ingesting them and to a large degree passing them through our stool. So the thinking is that these bigger pieces of microplastic just kind of go through us. The more important question I think is the very, very tiny bits of microplastics which might be able to embed in our gut and the tissue and then leach out those chemicals that uh, they have been toying with in the lab with these other organisms. The problem is it's just, it's a huge unknown. It's a very new field of science and all the testing methods are very new. So you have different groups of researchers trying different things, building off each other's work, uh, you know, using different fineness of a mesh to, you know, say, to, to filter out these microplastics, which gives you different sizes of microplastics. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a wild west in the field, but there's an extreme urgency to it because we need to find out very soon what's happening to the body. Uh, if we're inhaling this and getting it in our lungs or if we're eating it, drinking it, we just have no idea. So the WHO yesterday said, uh, well, at the moment, we just, we don't know. We can't deem it a public health risk, uh, but we do need a tremendous amount of research into this. Um, everybody understands that it's a problem. And uh, like most of the problems with pollution in this world, uh, it seems to be disproportionately affecting people in the developing world more so than it is folks in the developed world that we live in. Um, what can you tell us about that? This is an interesting bit that came up in the WHO report yesterday in saying, listen, this isn't a problem yet. Um, they made a very fine point to say, we know that 2 billion people on this planet are drinking water that's fecally contaminated. We know very clearly that that is bad and that leads to about a million deaths per year. So what the WHO is saying is focus on that. That is a known. We need to fix that problem urgently. Now we need to start thinking about what about microplastics? How do we handle that going forward if we do find that there is some adverse effects in the human body? But, you know, it's about, first of all, getting wastewater treatment into the develop, de developing world more um, to, to get that water clean, but then start thinking about maybe down the road how we can clean that water further of microplastics. 
the extra bit of irony is that the equipment itself might be made of plastic and contribute to the microplastic problem. So yes, in the developing world, as in a lot of cases with climate change and things like that, is disproportionately affected by this. And it's, yeah, it's, again, it's just such a pervasive problem. The stuff is absolutely everywhere, and there's just no way to pull it out of the ecosystem or out of organisms. How does this compare to previous generations of human beings who were also interacting with plastics? I mean, I wonder about maybe people our parents' age. You know, were people like ingesting this much plastic beforehand and we're just finding out about it now? Or has our, has our general consumption, our consumer habits changed to the point where we're really dealing with this in a, in a new way? That was another interesting bit of the WHO report that made the point that, well, we've had these plastics for decades. Presumably, we've been having these microplastics coming off of these larger bits of plastics for decades. We haven't seen an impact on human health. And when you think about kids in particular, who have for decades been playing with plastic toys, kids put these things in their mouths. And inevitably, that's going to put microplastics in their bodies. So the point that the report made was, we have been doing this for quite some time. Uh, The difference now is that we are producing something along the lines of 400 million tons of the stuff a year uh, that is going to things that is that surround us right now um, not important things like single-use bags but plastic is an extremely important material in our society you can't have single-use syringes without plastic it, it is vital for human health but unfortunately we're now at the point where it might be adverse for human health in a lot of ways and but there you know to your point there's there's it's been around for quite some time. It's around much more these days. It's just so pervasive in our lives. And just really in the past year or so, scientists have been studying this and, and finding these microplastics everywhere. And they're just they're, they're frantically searching for ways to find if this is adversely affecting human health. Because for decades, we have been, you know, our kids have been putting this stuff in their mouths. And we have been eating off plastic plates and plastic spoons drinking out of plastic cups and getting the microplastics that way. So yes, there's a supreme urgency here. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with more bad news. So Matt, you've given us a lot to think about here in terms of how microplastics could be potentially affecting our health and how microplastics are almost certainly destroying the planet. Do you have any good news for us? Like, is there any sense that there is something we can be doing as consumers or something we can be doing at a societal level that begins to dig us out of this hole? There has been some movement there when it comes to uh, consumers kind of rising up and saying, we don't need this single-use plastic. Like, things in grocery stores, like produce wrapped in plastic, that's completely unnecessary. You can push for change there. The problem is that As with climate change, it's the corporations that are responsible for this. It's not the people. So we are bearing the devastating effects of climate change uh, because, you know, 
100 corporations in on this planet make up 70% of emissions. It's the same with plastics. These are producers that are uh, using these plastics as much as they can because it's, it's become cheap. It's just a cheap way of packaging things. But there are more reasonable ways to go about this. So I, th- I think there can be some movement from the consumer side of things. But the, the base of the problem is that just plastics are so useful, uh, sometimes unnecessarily so with single-use plastic bags, but also with medical devices and things like that. It is absolutely vital in a lot of ways to modern human health. So what about different kinds of plastics? Like bioplastics have gotten a lot of attention recently. These are plastics that are made out of materials that are not derived from petroleum, things like uh, algae or corn. Uh, Do you know anything about the research that's being done there? That's another place where we just need a lot more research. Just because it's a a bioplastic, quote-unquote, doesn't mean that it's not potentially harmful for organisms. Um, Returning to this idea of these leachates, you can have a plastic that biodegrades, perhaps, but uh, it might be throwing off some strange chemicals that might affect one organism, maybe, out in the ocean. But if you are affecting something at the very base of the food chain, um, that can have ripple effects up to you know us. So yeah, the problem is that we just don't have enough research on the impacts of this stuff uh, on on organisms out in the wild, much less on human health. Um, Ideally, we do get to the point where we have plastics that biodegrade without breaking into tiny, tiny pieces and then getting into organisms that way. It's just we need so much more research, as the WHO report really says very urgently, uh, because we just have no idea. Where is the funding for this research coming from? The WHO, that is, uh, I believe, provided by Sweden, provided the funding for this particular research. Um but it's yeah, there, there'll be funding coming from from ever. I mean, this is a this is a very urgent problem for researchers. It is also probably a little bit easier to get funding for this just because of the publicity involved, uh, which is good. I mean, it's a, it's a good way to, tr- to drive this research. But you do also have a lot of pushback from the plastic industry. Believe it or not, these these powerful lobbying groups are like, you guys are overreacting here. Plastics is just so they they say that plastics is useful line, which is true. But the way we have deployed plastics has been wildly irresponsible, and the planet is now suffering for it. Won't somebody think of the leachates? Won't somebody think of the leachates? The the leachates that are now everywhere. Well, Matt, this has been really insightful, and your story is on Wired.com this week. Everybody should go check it out. And would you like to stick around for recommendations? Sure. All right, let's do it. All right, now it's time for recommendations. We play baseball rules here at the end of the show. So Matt, you are the visitor. You get to go first. Tell us, what would you like to recommend to our audience? I'm going to continue the dire tone of this conversation and talk about uh, actually a series of books that I've been reading by Stephen Pine, P-Y-N-E. He's a fire historian down in Arizona who has written a really interesting series of books about the nature of fire, how fire behaves, the cultural history of fire, um, how we're all going to be consumed by fire in the very near future. <laughs> but there's um, there's he some yeah, <laughs> it's, 
plastics, fire, <laughs> climate change. It's all horrible. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about um, these weird feedback loops of fire being more powerful and, and devastating in these times of climate change. And that in turn producing more emissions, which feeds back into climate change. I'm going to stop now because I feel like we should move on to something more lighthearted. So you're recommending the the oeuvre, the, in, the whole series. It's great. If it's just yeah. in case one's not depressing enough, you yeah. should keep going. Just, just do it like all in one weekend and then uh, booze it up at night and make yourself feel better. How many books <laughs> are there? Oh, there's, I believe there's seven or eight. Okay. That's a good one. Ariel, do you have something perhaps... Mildly uplifting. Hmm. Yes, sure. I, I recommend booze. Um, I'm going to co-sign <laughs> on Matt's recommendation there, and uh, definitely always chase your your doom news with alcohol. Yeah, easy. Not, um, not unhealthy at all. <laughs> uh, no, my real recommendation is a podcast. It is called Carrier, and it's unlike anything I've ever heard before. It's not quite a podcast and not quite a radio play, but it is an audio fiction experience with the most interesting sound design I've truly ever heard. You ever driven a reefer? What? A refrigerated trailer. Do you know how to handle one? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, of course. How quick can you get on the road? It's basically about uh, a woman who is a long-haul truck driver, and um, it has actually some undertones of climate change and sort of like evil Monsanto-style companies doing mysterious, devastating research that harms humans. I'm trying not to give too much away, um, but it's one of the it's one of those things that like I look forward to listening to every new episode. And when you listen to an episode, you feel totally transformed um, from where you are to what's happening in the show. So uh, anyway, it's really cool. Um, if you if you do listen to it, send me a tweet. And let me know what you think. Um, I'm dying to discuss it with people, but it's it's a little hard to talk about without giving away too much. So I'm trying to be a little cryptic, but definitely check it out. It's called Carrier and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. How long is each episode? It's a great commute podcast. I listened to it recently on BART, which is the Bay Area's metro system, which is notoriously screechy and loud and uncomfortable and unpleasant. And I completely forgot I was on BART. And in fact, some of the sound design was so cool and had these like cool trucking noises that that overlaid with the screeching sound of the BART was this like amazingly cool experience. I highly recommend it. Ariel, you have a solution for BART. (laughs) Forget like fixing infrastructure, hiring more civil engineers, or just fixing Bay Area rapid transit. Just listen to podcasts that make you forget it's BART. You heard it here first. All right. Uh, Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, So my recommendation is a book, and it's kind of an old book, uh, but I don't care because I just read it, and I think it's great, and I'm telling other people about it, so I want to tell everybody about it. Uh, It is a book by Michael Pollan, uh, the famous uh, food and science writer, and it is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, and Depression. Uh, That absurdly long subtitle is there most probably to let you know that this is not just a book about trips and like people taking trips on on classic psychedelics. Uh, It is about the science of studying these things, how they affect brain chemistry, how sort of the the intersection of the 
the mystical experience and the scientific experience uh, is a very complicated one here uh, because there's no science to account for like talking to God, which is what people often experience when they take psychedelics. So Michael Pollan goes all the way back to um, the middle beginning, middle of the 20th century and talks about uh, the history of uh, particularly LSD and psilocybin uh, being used in trials uh, by psychologists to treat things like PTSD and um, the CIA experimented on people to see if it could be used as a psychological weapon. Uh, there are a lot of um, studies done in hospitals and institutions about it. And then the 60s happened and all of a sudden, LSD got a bad rap because it was changing society and the government uh, made it illegal and people started losing their children to the counterculture and it just became like all this cultural baggage got associated with it. So then there was sort of nothing done for about 20, 30 years. And now ever since the mid 90s, there have been a lot more research. There's been a lot more research and study done on it. And uh, we're at a place now where we're sort of seeing this second or third renaissance of um, psychedelics being used as a way to treat common things like anxiety and depression and addiction and also a way to sort of ease people's anxiety around their impending death. So there's one study where they give psychedelics to um, people who have very recently been given a terminal cancer diagnosis in order to help them process that news. And it's just a really fascinating book. And of course, being the good journalist that he is, he also ingests these molecules himself and goes on these wild mind journeys and tells you all about them, uh, which is a small part of the book, but it's also a very rich and tasty part of the book. Uh, just totally fascinating. Um, when you get to the end of the book, you have a completely different view. No matter, no matter what you bring to the book, when you get to the end of it, you have a very different view of what psychedelics are for and who should take them. So that's why I'm recommending it, mostly because the book is called How to Change Your Mind. And by reading it, most likely it will change your mind about these things that, you know, many people were brought up to think were evil. So that's my recommendation. It's now out in paperback uh, as of this summer. It came out last year. And now you can get it on paperback. Of course, you can also get it on like the Kindle or as an audiobook. Um, also, if you read it, and you're interested in the process and like what he went through, um, you should definitely listen to his appearance on the long form podcast uh, from maybe like a month or six weeks ago, uh, where he talks a lot. It talks a lot about like sort of the process of reporting and writing the book and how weird it was for him. So uh, it's very good. Definitely what changed his it. mind? What made him go from writing about food to this topic? Uh, he actually talks about this on the on the long form podcast. So he, you know, he did like three books about food four books about food, um, Omnivore's Dilemma, Botany of Desire. Uh, he had the Netflix series Cooked. And when he started, there was nobody like him and I think Eric Schlosser were writing about food. And by the time he got to his fourth or fifth book about food, this was, it was like this big, rich, crowded world. Uh, and at that point, he was like, well, I'm kind of interested in other topics, so I should find something that nobody else is writing about. And this was that topic. Very cool. Yep. Do you recommend reading the book while on psychedelics? Um, yes. Right Maybe microdose when you read it, <laughs> so you can optimize the uh, the absorption of information into your into your brain. Perfect. Yes. Have you read this book, Matt? I have. Yeah. What did yeah. you think of it? Uh, I thought it was great. I, I had the pleasure of, of interviewing him on stage for an event, and we had a great conversation about partly 
why he waited until older age to do it. I thought, I thought it was interesting. Um, I think I would feel the same. I, w- I wouldn't want to do it in my 20s. I don't think my brain was equipped for it. Uh, so I think I'll probably wait until I'm <laughs> 60, around his age yeah. to finally be mature enough to, to do the journey. Um, Lauren, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is listening to the Bill Simmons podcast. Um, but one interview in particular, on August 4th, he published an interview with Kara Swisher, who's a tech editor and journalist extraordinaire um, within our sort of group of peers, although to call Kara a peer is crediting ourselves quite a bit. And I found it to be a really interesting conversation. I thought there, I knew everything there was to know about Kara Swisher, and, uh, and I just think they had a really great dynamic and uh, Bill Simmons has a really great interview style. And, um, you know, he really kind of brought it down to like a non-techie level in a, good, in a good way, asking her what her thoughts were on the future of media streaming uh, services and Silicon Valley culture. Facebook Live. Right. When people will be able to have live video. And then it's like, great idea. Let's start working on it. And they put the best engineers possible on yeah. it. And they're trapped in the moment of the checkpoints sure. of creating this idea, never kind of looking at each other and going, hey, what happens if some crazy person just starts shooting no, people they don't on Facebook want it. It's a bummer. It's a, that's their mentality. I think, you know, I have this line I use a lot, which I say uh, to, to crowds of technology people was like, imagine your product is a Black Mirror episode and then don't make it. Yeah, it was just a really great podcast, podcast uh, interview. So I recommend it. It's long. It's like an hour and 40 minutes. And it's just called the Bill Simmons podcast. It's just called the Bill Simmons podcast. It's uh, it's part of um, his media brand, which is the Ringer, but that is the that is the title of his podcast. And um, and yeah, Kara Kara's a character. Kara's yeah, great. it doesn't so. surprise me to hear you say that it's like an hour and forty minutes long because those two can talk. Oh yeah, oh they can definitely talk. And um, yeah, and the thing is. is I think he's one of those people who can get away with an hour and 40 minute podcast. I mean, obviously there's a trend of very, very long, big interview style podcasts. And most of the time those podcasts are titled like white man's name podcast. Um, And so, you know, this is like falls into that category. But that said, I really do appreciate his interview style in a lot of ways. And uh, I worked um, for Kara and with Kara from 2011 to 2018. So I do know her quite well and have some great Kara Swisher stories, which I will hold over her head as blackmail for as long as I live. I'm just kidding. They're all great stories. She's really like warm-hearted and generous person beneath her um, her demeanor of being Silicon Valley's most fearsome journalist. But uh, but I don't know. I just, yeah, I just really enjoyed the conversation between the two of them. They talked a lot about responsibility among tech CEOs and how things have changed. I mean, he asked her questions like, who, who stood out to you as... Um, People who, like, before we all were sort of down on tech, like, who were actually really brilliant or smart entrepreneurs. And she has some great stories about meeting with people like Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Mark Zuckerberg in the very early days when we were all just sort of wide-eyed about these technology platforms and services and, and how, like, this has all evolved into the place we are today. And it was just a really enjoyable yeah. conversation. A peek behind the shades. Yeah. Yes, that's right. She was wearing shades during the podcast. <laughs> Bill Simmons commented on this. Just Take the darn sunglasses off, Kara. Nope. Yeah. Not going to happen. Well, this is not an hour and 40 minute long podcast. No, lucky for you. We have to end it there. Um, Matt Simon, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. uh, It's always a pleasure. And everybody should read your story about microplastics right now on Wired.com in the Science Channel. 
Uh, and if you have enjoyed this episode, or even if you maybe didn't enjoy it, you can give us some feedback. You can leave a review wherever you downloaded this from, uh, either on, on Apple's podcast platform or Google's podcast platform, or you can also give us feedback directly by tweeting at us uh, on the Twitter account at GadgetLab. Uh, Matt, how can people find you on Twitter? You can find me, uh, I don't really use it, which is irresponsible <laughs> of me as a, a person who works at Wired. Uh, I can't stand that place. But I'm there. Yeah, you can find me. Mr. Matt Simon. Like MR Matt Simon? Yeah. Okay. MR. That's innovative. That's, isn't it? Lauren, how can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Lauren Good with an E at the end. I'm at Part Esoteric. And I am at Snack Fight. And you can join us next week when we'll be back with another show. Thank you. <laughs>